Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today to be speaking with the author of a book that's come out from Oxford University Press in 2023, titled Assisting International Justice, Cooperation Between UN Peace Operations and the International Criminal Court in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. This book, I mean, pretty much does what the title says. It looks at how the ICC interacts with UN peace operations in the DRC, but also looks at this sort of interaction more broadly. Um, How does UN peacekeeping operations in a bunch of places, how do they interact with the ICC? Um, What sorts of requests are made by both sides? How are decisions made about the extent to which they should cooperate? Um, So this book has a lot to say about the DRC in particular, but also about these two really important international organizations as well. So I'm very pleased to welcome the author of the book, to speak with us today, Dr. Tom Boutlier. Uh, Tom, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. I'm so pleased. Before <laughs> we get into your book, could you please introduce yourself a little bit and explain why you decided to write this? Sure. So my name is Tom Boutlier. I'm, I'm an assistant professor in war, peace and justice at Leiden University. And I primarily study international conflict management with a focus on the UN's peace operations. So um, I'm also a Civil War Paths fellow this year, and I'm a co-convener of the Dutch Peacekeeping Network. Uh, And the book actually comes out of my PhD dissertation, which I wrote at the European University Institute in Florence, Italy, under the supervision of Professor Jennifer Welch. I was very interested in the enforcement problems that international criminal tribunals have. And so these, these institutions that try to hold perpetrators of atrocity crimes accountable, they tend to have very little enforcement powers uh, and they also rely almost entirely on others for the successful implementation of their mandate and there was a lot of literature out there that focused on the cooperation by states uh, but there was very little study of how tri- uh, tribunals cooperate with other actors uh, another thing that i found very interesting was uh, this balance between peace and justice in their conf- uh, that the international interveners have to strike in their conflict interventions so priscilla hayner actually calls this the peacemakers paradox where on the one hand it's no that there cannot really be sustainable peace without justice for um, for people who committed war crimes. But on the other hand, we also know that accountability for war crimes uh, is really among the thorniest issues at the negotiation table. So for peacekeepers who need to provide peace, who need to keep the peace, I thought, uh, f- found it very interesting to study how these peacekeepers then try to also balance uh, this imperative to get justice for war crimes with their mandate to keep and sustain peace. And so that is why I came to this, yeah, assistance between or cooperation between the UN and the ICC as as an instance of this. And uh, I developed that throughout my PhD thesis. And then afterwards, I got a contract at uh, OUP at, at Oxford University Press to write this book. Thank you for taking us through that development. Um, it's obviously been a long time coming, but now we're yes. here and we get to talk about it. So can you take us through, um, obviously in a bit more detail, what you're investigating in the book, both in terms of theory, but also in terms of 
practice and kind of what we're seeing on the ground that maybe we haven't investigated academically? Right. So it's yeah, it addresses a number of puzzles, this book. And the primary puzzle is really the variation that I observed initially in how UN peace operations assist the International Criminal Court. Uh, so the on the one hand, they have been sometimes quite eager and very willing to support the International Criminal Court in its investigations uh, in these in these countries for war crimes. Uh, so they have been sharing information or they've been sharing uh, confidential documents. Uh, they have provided witnesses at ICC trials. Uh, in some cases, they have even assisted in the arrest of ICC suspects. Um, and also very important practical things like if these investigators come to a country like the Democratic Republic of Congo, they need uh, transport, they need accommodation, they need um, to know where to go, where the crimes have been committed. And so the UN has been very uh, cooperative in these regards. Uh, but this cooperation didn't always um, go easily. There were also instances in which the UN refused to cooperate, in which it said that it was too difficult, that it wasn't in its mandate, or that there was no support for it from the host state. And so this variation I found very interesting, and I wanted to understand under which conditions the UN peace operations do assist the ICC. How can we explain this variation? So there were also a couple of related puzzles, because I also felt there was very, uh, simply very little information out there on what UN ICC cooperation looks like. So I mentioned a couple of examples, but in these ICC documents and some interviews that I did initially, uh, it came forward that it was actually a very important way in which the ICC operates in countries that it's investigating. But there was just very little detail on what this meant in practice. So this is one of the things that I tried to reveal in the book. Um, the other thing, the second related puzzle, and that is also more a bit of a theoretical puzzle, is how UN peace operations deal with conflicting obligations. And I think the peace versus justice dilemma is an example of that. On the one hand, it needs to keep and sustain peace. On the other hand, it also is often mandated to support countries in finding justice for war crimes. And in the book, I also talk about other dilemmas, such as balancing cooperation and confrontation with the host state when it comes to human rights issues. Uh, and the question here is really then how peace operations decide and how they resolve dilemmas. And to some degree, that has some broader reflection on how international organizations, which are often pushed in different directions by the member states, how they resolve these kinds of dilemmas and who has a voice in these decisions and also who has agency in these decisions. So I really wanted to get into the nuts and bolts of what such decisions look like. That makes a lot of sense. As you said, there's sort of mentions, but not hang on, what does that actually mean? So obviously that makes sense that you are looking in detail and obviously a case study helps with that. So I suppose my kind of question is, there's a number of ways and different organizations that UN operations interact with. I mean, you even just listed a few there, for example, relations with host countries being just one of them. So choosing to focus on the operations interactions with the ICC is definitely a choice, as well as then which case study do you investigate that interaction through? So could you talk us through why you chose to focus on interactions with the ICC specifically and then through the case study of the Democratic Republic of the Congo? Yeah, sure. I'll try to um, yeah, 
tell uh, or explain a little bit how I whittled that down to this one particular case that I really focused on. So for when it comes to how UN peace operations deal with conflicting obligations, I just think that this peace justice dilemma was something that I was personally very much interested in. Uh, also, even coming out of my master's already, actually, after the um, uh, before the PhD thesis, and then after that, I worked at a think tank on this uh, similar dilemma on peace and justice in international interventions. Um, so I found that very interesting, but I also feel that it's a very clear dilemma where they can't really do the right thing, it seems, right? So if they would say, well, we are going to focus on peace, that might mean that there need to be some amnesties for war crimes. If they're going to focus on justice, uh, that might be very important too, but that might mean that sometimes uh, there's going to be some degree of destabilization or a, a very fragile political process is going to be undermined. So this, they really can't do well, or they, it's very difficult to do the right thing because both of them have uh, difficult um, problem and problematic um, uh, downsides. Uh, both choices have downsides. Uh, so I, I, I feel that that was a very strong dilemma that I to focus on. Uh, and then there were a couple of other choices, right? So there's different kinds of peace operations out there. Uh, in the news recently, there have been these missions in the uh, in the Middle East, which are really more traditional observer missions that in that they observe ceasefires or they observe a particular political process and they monitor that both sides comply with the details of those processes. But they are often not really mandated to focus on uh, justice. So multidimensional peace operations actually are quite often also focused on a broader set of tasks. And this has, since the 1990s, quite often also included assistance to national and international justice. That's the way it's being framed in the mandate. And so that, that meant that if I wanted to investigate this dilemma, it meant I had to focus on multidimensional peace operations. And they're also led by the, end, by the UN. And so this multidimensional nature also leads to the fact that they have to balance often competing mandates. So then there would be, there would be assistance to international justice. But uh, we already mentioned, I think, that uh, there's different international tribunals. There's not just the International Criminal Court. You also have the Yugoslavia Tribunal, the Rwanda Tribunal. Uh, there have been uh, several hybrid tribunals where the national um, judiciary and the UN cooperate to bring about accountability for war crimes. But the reason that I chose the ICC was that this is a permanent tribunal, uh, a permanent court, rather, that has been active in many situations in which UMPs operations are also present. So because it's a permanent court, uh, that also means I think that there are situations in which there is a potential for cooperation, but also that such situations are most likely to emerge again. And so therefore, I think also the book's findings might have had more policy relevance. So uh, that means that I'm looking at UMPs operations and the ICC. As you mentioned, there are a couple of countries in which these uh, organizations cooperated, including Mali, Central African Republic, Sudan. So the reason that I chose for the Democratic Republic of Congo case or DRC case is that I, it was most likely for me to contain the largest amount of empirical observations to test my theory. And that has a bit to do with the phase of theory development that this is in. So I wanted to have a very rich case which would give a lot of analytical leverage to address the puzzles I formulated. So for the ICC, this was actually, it was its second investigation, started in 2004, it's still ongoing. Uh, it also gave it its first conviction um, with Tomalu Banga in 2010. And it also has been one of the most active cases for the court with one of the most, um, one of the most uh, uh, arrest warrants issued. 
And for the UN, the DRC was a bit of a laboratory for peacekeeping practices. It's been engaged close to 25 years now. It might actually start drawing down either this year or next year. Uh, but that means that it has been there since um, for almost 25 years. And in those 25 years, it has experimented with a lot of new approaches to things like protecting civilians, cooperating with host state forces, but also assisting international justice. And many of these lessons were subsequently applied to other peace operations. And so looking at this first instance of cooperation between the ICC and the UN felt for me like it was the richest case to study and would be most likely to offer the largest amount of empirical observations. Uh, the is also for me a personal reason. I'm very much fascinated by the long-standing conflict in the Great Lakes region, um, where despite years of international intervention, uh, significant violence is still persisting. So last, last October, the International Organization for Migration actually reported that the record high of 6.9 million people were displaced due to the violence in Eastern Congo. And this is violence that has been going on for... Um, almost 30 years already. Uh, and I, I think that it's important to keep on this, uh, keep investigating and keep understanding this conflict and see where the root causes are and what international interveners have done to try to address it. That makes a lot of sense. Um, thank you for taking us through those kind of decisions that you made. And I think that lets us now get into the details um, of this case and of the contribution more broadly. So we've mentioned a few times the idea that the UN operations get a number of requests, that it's built into the mandate, but of course, mandate language is pretty broad, right? What does it mean to cooperate with international justice? So when the ICC asks UN operations to do things, what exactly is a UN operation leader weighing up? What are the factors that come into their decision-making about kind of, we've gotten this request, now what? Right. Um, and so this is most of the work that I did in the, in the book is to address exactly that question. So what factors come in? What are the conditions under which UN peace operations assist an international, the International Criminal Court? And in my book, I really um, focus on this person or these people that have to make this decision. So the unit of analysis, let's say, is the uh, leader of a UN peace operation. So this is the special representative of the Secretary General, uh, also to some degree the force commander, and to an important degree the um, leader of the human rights component of a UN peace operation. And uh, what I did was ask, what are the factors that influence this, this decision? Uh, and what, the, what kind of conditions um, do these mission leaders take into account? So part of that was, uh, of course, as you mentioned, the mandate. Because in the end, the mandate is a peace operations most important um, document that guides all its actions. It's also the legal basis for its very existence. Uh, but that mandate is often underspecified. It doesn't necessarily say in situation X, you have to do always do Y. It's more like you have to assist international justice, but on the same time, you also have to do all kinds of other things. Uh, so that mandate was important, but I found actually that the most important aspect of these decisions is the, uh, both the risk that assistance, gen assistance generates to a couple of important goals and the um, uh, so-called agent level factor. So who is the person who is actually making the decision? What is that person's background? What is the personality? What are their values? Uh, and that this actually plays an undervalued role in peacekeeping decisions. 
So let me take you to a couple of, uh, through a couple of the risks. Uh, and let me mention three domestic ones and three uh, and one international one. Uh, the risks I actually, to a degree, uh, developed on the basis of, the, of some work done by Emily Patton Rhodes. Uh, and she argued that peace operations take into account three risks in particular. Uh, the first is the potential risk to stability. So this really goes to the core of what a peace operation is supposed to do. It's supposed to keep the peace. And so risks to stability are something that a peace operation is going to take into account and do that very in a very serious manner. So if there are threats to stability, a peace operation is supposed to address that. Um, and that really goes against this idea of, uh, of, of cooperation with international criminal justice in those cases in which uh, justice might undermine stability. So there have been instances in which an international court is going after, let's say, an armed group leader. <coughs> Excuse me. And that, armed, uh, that arrest warrant against that armed group leader leads to further escalation or it might prevent a peace negotiation from becoming successful because uh, an armed group leader might want that ICC arrest warrant to be taken off the table. Uh, so in a situation like that, in which there might be a threat to stability, uh, the UN will take that risk to stability very uh, much into account when it's being asked by the International Criminal Court to assist. So one example of this actually occurred in the Central African Republic, where the UN mission is deeply involved in promoting criminal accountability through, amongst others, the Special Criminal Court that it has uh, supporting, but also the International Criminal Court. Uh, but at the same time, it's also been willing to underwrite peace efforts that provide de facto amnesties, right? So where it might not necessarily be written in the peace agreement that an armed group is going to get amnesty, but it is give, give, being given so much power and so much protection that any judicial action against the armed group is almost impossible. And the UN has been quite willing to underwrite that because it hopes that such a peace agreement might bring sustainable peace to a country. So that's the first risk is to stability. And the second is the potential risk that uh, assistance generates to emissions relations with the government. Uh, UN peace operations, as many will know, uh, are there on the basis of the consent of the host governments. We saw recently that the, when the Mali government, the junta in Mali, withdrew its consent and asked the UN Security Council uh, to withdraw the UN peace operation there, that the UN Security Council basically had very little choice but to say, okay, if the government doesn't want us there, we are going to have to leave because peacekeeping is there with the consent of the parties to the conflict. Um, so that's one part of it. But the other thing is also very simply that if a UN peace operation is going to be effective, it needs to have good working relations with the host state. Because in the end, they want to leave behind a functioning state after they leave. Uh, the peace operation is going to stay there forever. It needs to leave behind some functioning infrastructure. So if the ICC is prosecuting agents of the government or partners of that same government, uh, peace operations assistance to the ICC might negatively affect their relations. That is the potential risk. So let's say the ICC is prosecuting a, um, a leader of the army, which hasn't happened too often, but in that theoretical situation, then obviously if the UN peace operation is assisting the ICC in those prosecutions, then the government is going to like that and that's going to have negative repercussions. So within uh, Sudan, that there is actually a, a practical example because the International Criminal Court indicted in 2009 the president of Sudan, Omar al-Bashir, 
while also a UN peace operation was present in the country. So basically, the, the, the practical effects of that was that UN-ICC cooperation on the ground became entirely out of the question because any hint or potential that the UN would be assisting the ICC uh, was made very clear to the UN by the Sudanese government would mean that uh, that would jeopardize the relations and might lead to retaliation and might even lead to the uh, mission being asked to leave by the Sudanese government. So that's the second risk, that's, that's the risk to the relations to the government. And the third risk is the risk to the mission's personnel. So the thing here is that association with war crimes prosecutions might hamper perceptions that the mission is impartial. So this is the third important thing that UN peace operations are supposed to do, that they are supposed to remain impartial. They are not supposed to take sides in a conflict. So association with war crimes prosecutions might lead to um, uh, hostile actions against the peace operation because a uh, UN mission's impartiality is undermined if it's, it's basically saying, oh, we agree with these prosecutions of particular uh, armed group leaders or, or government agents. So that uh, reduction in partiality might lead to hostility towards the peace operation. Uh, but also some kinds of assistance, especially assistance in arrest, might also lead to severe risk to peacekeepers. I mean, you can imagine that if uh, the, the target of an ICC arrest warrant uh, is going to be an armed group leader, for example, that that armed group leader is quite often well protected by heavily armed militia men, and that arrest will not always happen without a fight. So a very powerful example of this was actually one in 2006, uh, a contingent of Guatemalan blue helmets tried to arrest ICC fugitive Vincent Otti in Garamba National Park in the DRC. Uh, and nine peacekeepers, nine Guatemalan blue helmets were killed in what was most likely an ambush by um, Vincent Otti's armed group, the large resistance army. So this was a very clear example also to mission leaders of the potential risks that assistance to the ICC might, uh, might have for their own troops. So let me uh, just very quickly say uh, something about uh, the risk that exists at the international level before I talk too much about this question, uh, that uh, UN peace operations obviously, obviously do not only need local legitimacy, they also need international legitimacy. Uh, and they're going to encounter serious problems if they're going to assist the ICC without the support from their political masses and the UN Security Council. Um, and so they also need to take into account the potential international repercussions of assistance. And we can maybe talk about uh, more about the international uh, angle in the, later in the, in the, in the yes, conversation. Yes, we definitely will. Um, before we get there, I'd like to stay on this idea of kind of the decision making, um, because what you've just described to us is not an easy task for the leader of a UN operation, right? Those risks are pretty substantial, but also nuanced, right? There's a lot of understanding of multiple different arenas of politics needed to go, hang on a second, what are we going to do about this? So that's, you know, not something that just anyone can walk in and go, I know how to deal with this. So in your investigation, what kinds of leadership qualities, special expertise, you know, what sorts of things did the people making these decisions need to either have themselves or have within the mission they were in charge of in order to make ICC cooperation possible? 
Yes, absolutely. That's a very good question. And I think it's, it also touches upon uh, this important concept of agency, the role of individuals in making these kinds of assistance decisions, which is also one of the key findings of my book, that we need to take into account who is occupying leadership roles in human peace operations, but also what kind of people are being employed by these human peace operations. So that means that we need to look at their backgrounds, their leadership styles, uh, their personalities, but also, as you mentioned, their expertise. Uh, and this especially is the case for uh, something like assistance to the International Criminal Court because it's, uh, as you mentioned, is a very nuanced and complex question. There's not necessarily an easy way out of this. So a certain level of political attunement and uh, an ability to yeah, look farther than the first step ahead, let's say, um, when making a decision like that is very, very important. And that is especially the case for the political leader of the mission, the special represent, uh, representative of the Secretary General, who really has to take into account all these different factors, so the, the relations with the government, the state of the conflict in the country, but also uh, the, it's his, his or her own personnel. And that's also a very important job of a leader, is to protect their own people. Um, and with regards to assistance to the ICC, that also, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty specialized task. It's a judicial court and a court, as, as, you, as, you, probably, as you know, I mean, every court is, is built on laws, it's built on legal expertise, uh, and it has to gather evidence and build its arguments in a particular kind of way. And this goes to the kind of expertise that needs to be present in a mission. Um, UN human rights investigators are very specialized personnel. They have good training quite often in collecting um, information on human rights violations. But their goal is different from what the ICC wants. Because a human rights component in a UN, UN mission needs to report on these, um, on these violations or bring these violations to the attention of the host state government, for example, or to the attention of the UN. And so its reporting requirements are going to be different than the kinds of information and specific detail that the ICC needs to say this particular person was responsible for this particular crime at that moment in time. And we have this physical and witness evidence against this person. Uh, that's, so that's, that's a particular kind of expertise that's somewhat different. Uh, and even though this you know, existing human rights expertise within UN missions is already very useful, uh, one of the things that has sometimes been lacking is on how to make sure that this information that's being gathered is also useful in the context of an international criminal trial. Um, so that's, that's when it comes to expertise, when it comes to the kind of leadership that is uh, necessary in a mission. What I really, really found is that some kinds of leadership were more helpful in the UN mission than others in facilitating cooperation with the ICC. And this isn't necessarily then that this kind of leadership is always helpful in uh, achieving the entire mandate, but it, there, for, for assistance to the ICC, a particular kind of leadership personalities and, and particular kinds of leadership roles were particularly helpful. And uh, basically, I found three that were very, uh, very helpful. Uh, one of them is that a certain level of assertiveness is quite important. So a lot of UN leaders tend to be deferential to the interests of, a, of, of the state. They say, well, we need to cooperate with the state and we are here for the state. So we need to be here also in support of the state. And so if the state doesn't want us to do something, we need to think twice before we do it. Well, I just mentioned the, uh, the, the fact that sometimes these ICT prosecutions aren't necessarily welcomed by the host state. Uh, and also the 
that there are risks involved. And so if someone is, uh, is a bit more assertive, a bit more tolerant of risks and saying, I am a principled supporter of this kind of, um, of this kind of justice and that the fact that there needs to be a fight against the impunity, then uh, that is a very helpful trait for a mission leader to have. The problem is quite often that these more assertive mission leaders do not stay for long in countries because they are going to be disliked by the host country. They're going to be disliked by some of the armed groups because they're taking principled stances, which is not always necessarily in the interest of the parties they're supposed to be cooperating with. But this, this assertiveness and so that they're principled justice supporters and a certain degree of tolerance for risk, these three factors are very helpful at a leadership level is what I found and in the book. I found that a really interesting finding because I think to me it highlighted the fact that these things are so dependent on the individual in a lot of ways because they aren't written down, right? The mandate doesn't say um, very much about being assertive. You know, it says some things cooperate with international justice, but like how, how much, you know, how much risk does that entail you're meant to take, etc. Um, and so it really does come down to the individual because it's not written down in the mission sort of no matter what. So can we talk a bit more about the mandate? What impact, if it is in some senses so reliant on the leadership as you've just detailed, what impact does the mandate have, if any really, on the extent to which a UN operation assists the ICC? Yeah, so mandates are, I mean, uh, it's something that a lot of analysts will quite quickly point to when trying to understand what peace operations do. And that is is not entirely incorrect, of course, because the mandate is a legal basis for what a UN peace operation is allowed to do. They're only there because the UN Security Council has authorized them with a particular mandate. Uh, so... But as you mentioned, these mandates are often not necessarily very clear or very um, action guiding. Let me be clear, if, if a mandate does not have any kind of reference to that a peace operation needs to assist in national or international justice or has no human rights language in the mandate, it's going to be extremely difficult for a UN peace operation to justify assistance to the International Criminal Court. But um, there's, uh, in these large missions that I'm investigating, their language that is present is very vague. It's uh, that they have to support national and international, just, uh, national and international justice, or they have to uh, collect and monitor and report on uh, violations of human rights. Uh, these, this kind of language is present in a mandate. And uh, this is there at the same time as that they have to support the host state's armed forces in, for example, um, extending the authority and, and fighting armed groups sometimes. Or it has been there at the same time as that they have to support um, for the protection of civilians. And so when these goals start to clash, there's nothing in the, in the mandate uh, which unequivocally tells it what to do. What the UN Security Council has started to do in the 2000s and 2010s and also more recently is uh, prioritization. And sometimes what happens is that they tell a peace operation, this is your priority task. Uh, and this has been sometimes a little bit difficult then for the prospects of cooperation with the ICC because uh, a, 
if, if uh, the, this task of assisting international justice isn't prioritized, then when there's any kinds of conflict or when there's any kinds of, for example, it has to allocate scarce resources, because let's not forget UN peace operations are um, quite often under-resourced, uh, then they're going to focus on other things. So that, that has to some degree happened in, uh, in these mandates, that there's prioritization going on, and that this has sometimes undercut the prospects for cooperation. Uh, but the, the vague and ambiguous language that is there, it, it means that there's some of the decision-making authority or some of the, uh, let's say, the, how to balance these difficult cases is being put with the leaders on the ground. Uh, that has the upside of uh, the yeah, enabling these mission leaders to make context-dependent decisions and also take into account all these nuances that we've been talking about. Uh, but, but at the same time, sometimes it, it has meant that uh, there's, it's also quite easy to justify non-cooperation, that there's a, if a, it can always say, well, you know, yes, I'm supposed to assist international justice, but it's not necessarily clear that that means that I need to do X, Y, and Z. So I can also um, justify not doing this in this particular instance because I have other obligations that I need to attend to. Uh, and that, that's, I think, also something that tells us, um, or is also what, what tells us a little bit about how UN peace operations work, that sure, these mandates are important, but the interpretation and the translation to underground circumstances is what is being done by mission leaders on the ground. Which is an interesting thing to think about when we go back to your point about the idiosyncrasies of leaders, right? That they can be interpreted in such different ways with such different outcomes. Um, but leaving aside leaders themselves for a moment and um, the specifics of the mandate, I, I, I don't want us to fall into the trap of thinking that all of this is about kind of what is in the UN operation itself or what the ICC asks for. Because, of course, both of these organizations are interacting in this massive ecosystem, right? And it's not just kind of who the leader is or isn't or whether they've got enough specialized human rights people in the mission there's a lot of other things happening that influence the UN operation and the ICC. And I guess my question is, and the interaction between them. So I'm specifically asking about sort of other international actors. Um, what role, direct or indirect, might they have on how these two entities interact? Right, yeah, and, and it's a good point that you're making because if you start to focus on the micro level, there's this tendency to start forgetting about the macro level. Uh, and that, that is a, uh, a tendency that, that I also sometimes find with myself. Yours, you get so down into the details and you really start focusing on the mission level and sometimes you start forgetting about the fact that these are also international organizations and that obviously the UN peace operation also isn't the only actor that is involved in international conflict management and that, uh, the, that there are many states, but also NGOs and other international organizations that try to influence what is going on with regards to international interventions in the country. Uh, so and it's actually good that you already mentioned this, this direct and indirect aspect, because I think that's a good way of looking at it. Uh, because on the one hand, you have this direct involvement from interested states in the conflict management in a particular country. So let's take the DRC as a, as a good example, because that's the case that I know most about. Um, when the UN mission started its cooperation with the ICC, uh, that happened in 2004. So 
if we go back in time a little bit, the, US, the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court had been uh, signed in 1998. Then in 2002, there were enough ratifications of the Rome Statute for the International Criminal Court to be established. And in 2004, it was still a very young institution. And it was an institution that was very much under uh, attack by the administration of the United States of America at that time uh, with very uh, with patterns that were very similar to the ways in which uh, the administration of Donald Trump interacted with the ICC. And one of the funny things is that the prime um, proponent or the, uh, let's say, the protagonist in the story, you can say antagonist, however you want to see it, was uh, Ambassador John Bolton who was the national security advisor for Donald Trump, but the uh, permanent representative to the United Nations uh, at the time of the ICC's early years. Uh, so John Bolton was uh, basically leading a crusade against the International Criminal Court still in 2004. Um, that it was an illegitimate institution, that it didn't want others to cooperate with the ICC, uh, and that it's basically, yeah, should, it tried to really uh, smother it in its, uh, in its cradle. Uh, and that uh, what what happened in 2004 when the peace operations started to be get into a situation in which it could cooperate with the ICC was that the US was making very clear uh, that it didn't want the U uh, UN peacekeeping operation in the in, in the Congo to cooperate with the ICC. Uh, it was it made a public statement in the UN Security Council. It um, would call some of the people in the UN mission saying, oh, you aren't cooperating with the ICC, are you? Uh, and so it really tried to minimize the possibility for, for interaction there. The funny thing is, and I think this tells us a little bit about how international organizations work, is that even though, uh, let's not forget 2004, the US was still very powerful uh, in, within the world system, more powerful than, was, than it is now. Uh, it, it, even though this very powerful state was making very clear that it didn't want this UN mission to cooperate, uh, the UN mission still found ways to interact with the International Criminal Court. So actually some of this would happen under the radar. And I spoke to the uh, leader of the mission at the time, William Lacey Swing, who would say, you know, yes, sure, uh, the US didn't want us to do it, but we felt it was very important to get to some kind of justice in these, in the, with, with the horrible crimes that have happened. We feel it is very important to support this institution because it's, um, it goes well with the principles of the UN, of human rights and of accountability. And so it would actually try, the uh, William Lacey Swing would still try to do as much as possible for, uh, to cooperate with the ICC, but it would try to do it in a not so public way. And so it would not try to publicly associate with the International Criminal Court. Uh, it would not officially allow uh, ICC investigators within peacekeeper camps, for example, because that might lead to association and that might lead to, uh, to a negative reaction from the International Criminal Court. So I found that a very interesting example of a state that is trying to influence the course that a UN peace operation is trying to take, uh, but then the UN peace operation responding in a way that still adheres to its uh, own assessment of what it is supposed to do. So that is direct involvement. Uh, when it comes to indirect involvement, we shouldn't be forgetting that these both the UN and the ICC are member state organizations. Uh, and both the UN and the ICC are entirely dependent uh, on, for, for, for example, financing or its funding 
of these member states organizations or, or of these member states uh, apologies and uh, even though there it has a pretty large room for uh, some independent decision making uh, it's going to have to take into account the interests of its member states um, and well quite, uh, quite recently there was the assembly of states parties in, uh, in new york uh, where the icc's member states are discussing the course that the icc is taking they're obviously trying to not explicitly or publicly say well this is the uh, direction that the prosecutor is supposed to take uh, these are the cases it's supposed to take on but with its the amount of money that it provides with the level of cooperation that it provides to the icc it can steer the icc in particular directions and what you see is that the icc is then taking into account the potential effects of its actions on this cooperation so it will rarely do this publicly it will rarely say well um, if we're going to do this then uh, the states might not want to cooperate with us but it's it is something that is basically always playing uh, a role in the background uh, quite uh, actually in the uh, ICC's investigation in Afghanistan, the initial decision from the ICC was that uh, it shouldn't open the investigation because there was too little chance for cooperation. And it was very controversial at the time because, you know, basically they're saying, well, there is not enough political will to support this uh, judicial decision and therefore this judicial decision shouldn't be taken. But it was also a very realistic thing because without cooperation, the ICC is nowhere. So I think this is, you know, indirectly the um, uh, actions of these international organizations are always going to be influenced to some degree by the member states. And that means that the attitudes that member states have and the uh, interest that member states have in how the UN and the ICC cooperate is going to shape the way that this is going no, to absolutely. look. Absolutely. And I'm so glad you mentioned that aspect because it is easy to go, oh, the ICC, that sounds like a sort of standalone organization that's in control of its actions, which of course is not true when um, the member states control things like budgets um, and priorities. So no, and just just to maybe um, emphasize a little bit is that it, it, technically the ICC's prosecutor is allowed to operate independently, and it's it also its independence and its impartiality is obviously something that it is at least claiming to um, really support and protect because this is uh, without it, it's going to be a completely uh, politicized court, but. There's always, and it's it's very very difficult to say explicitly. This is where the ICC is clearly taking political interests into account. But as scholars and observers, uh, I mean, it's quite sometimes quite easy and quite um, telling to say, well, well, actually, you know, this the way that the ICC is operating here. It's it's very unlikely to do so if it wouldn't care about the prospects for cooperation. So it's, it's a little bit, I mean, we shouldn't necessarily be saying objectively this is a fact that it's, it's the ICC isn't independent, but it's, we should always uh, have this in the back of our minds when we analyze the ICC that there is this um, yeah, prospect of, of the fact that it needs cooperation no, from states. But it's just a small nuance that no, I would, did want to make there. Um, I'd like to ask you to turn to another section of the book, uh, we've been talking a lot about kind of how decisions are, what what kinds of cooperations might be asked for and how decisions are made about kind of whether to acquiesce to a request from the ICC. I'd like to move then to kind of 
imagine that decision has been made, right? The UN is going to cooperate. The UN operation will cooperate with the ICC. What actually does that do? What are the structural impacts of that? What are the operational impacts of that um, once a decision to cooperate has been made? So very good question. Yeah, so this is something that um, I think we shouldn't leave out of the consideration because it's the effects of it are um, sometimes direct and clearly observable, but sometimes they are also happening on a more longer term level. And I think uh, showing some trends in international conflict management. So because we've been mostly talking about the, the direct and more uh, micro-level aspects of this assistance. Let me start with the, maybe the operational impact that it has. Uh, and we, we can talk about more of these, but, but let me mention just one. Uh, so it's important, I think, to highlight that despite the UN's ability to manage most of the negative consequences of assistance, so some of these risks that we've been discussing, there is, it, in the end, an inevitable dilemma at the heart of the relationship. So when push comes to shove, the two entities are going to have different uh, priority interests that do not always go together. So the UN is interested in keeping the peace or remaining impartial, maintaining consent uh, from as many conflict parties as possible, uh, but also uh, using limited force. And the ICC is going to be interested in pursuing legal accountability for atrocity crimes. And as I highlighted also, I think in the in the beginning of our conversation, peace and justice do not always easily go together. And I think that the UN's assistance to the ICC clearly shows that this has indeed frequently generated uh, such dilemmas that it has to, or at least is thrown into a position where it perceives a choice between peace and justice. And uh, some of the um, responses at the public level have not always been helpful. So sometimes we see that the UN is going to say, well, there cannot be peace without justice, so there is no choice. Uh, we always have to do the, both things at the same time. Or there's a response like uh, peace and justice are two sides of the same coin, uh, which is true at the theoretical level. But when looking at the operational level and when it comes to these kinds of decisions, this isn't always the case. It's, it's just a um, paradox that I think needs more acknowledgement. Uh, so ignoring those choices can sometimes have negative effects at the operational level i think uh, when it comes to the structural level uh, i actually show in the book that this unicc cooperation has been the way in which it has been operationalized is you know it, it has idealistic pr principles and there's often been very good intentions but i think it reinforces reinforces some of the problematic trends in international conflict management practices that we're seeing today which are characterized uh, most clearly by an emphasis on state-centric peacekeeping, where this, the state is at the center is about extension of host state authority. Uh, we're there at the behest and that we're there to support the state. And it also sometimes has, mean, has meant that the UN gets involved either directly or in indirectly in, in counterinsurgency and counterterrorism. So I think this... this um, effect of this, the way in which the UNIC cooperation has been operationalized, operationalized is supporting some of these trends. And this is happening because the UN, for understandable reasons, has justified and filtered its assistance through host state consent. So it has always said we're supporting the host state in its sovereign obligations to implement the Rome Statute and the UN Charter. And that is the way, the way that it has justified assistance to the ICC. And simultaneously, uh, this is something that we were just talking about, the ICC has also preferred to take a cooperative approach towards relations with target states. So it has preferred to work together with the host state to 
built on accountability instead of saying we're going to be confrontational and we're going to you know, uh, clearly investigate also crimes by the host states. And the problem here, I think, with these approaches is that the ICC and the UN are both at risk of being instrumentalized by some of these states and also in broader geopolitical competition, including for goals that will strengthen an exclusive and authoritarian order. So some of the states in conflicts that the, uh, that the UN and the ICC have been involved in aren't necessarily beneficial actors. They've been led by elites uh, and by an, an, a small clique of powerful uh, individuals, and th they have tried to use the UN and the ICC to strengthen their own power. So they've mostly been targeted at their opponents uh, and sometimes saying, well, these opponents are terrorists or these opponents are you know, rebels without any legitimacy. We need to take them out. Uh, instead of saying we need to build some kind of inclusive and democratic democratic state, and this is the problem here a little bit is then that when the UN is explicitly saying, well, we're only going to support the ICC if the host state wants us to do so, they might risk becoming willing collaborators in efforts by these domestic elites to instrumentalize the ICC as a so-called international legal lasso to neutralize domestic opposition. So, as you were discussing that, I was thinking through the examples in the book, specifically from the DRC, that that analysis, unfortunately, very much applies to. But it's clear that this isn't just something that's happening with the DRC. So is there anything further you'd like to say about how your findings um, apply beyond that particular case? Right. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I did a lot of uh, research into the DRC case, and this is, I think, really the main body of the book. Uh, but I also include a chapter in which I conduct uh, possibility probes on, on the other situations in which the ICC interacted with a UN peace operation. So these are the Central African Republic. Uh, Cote d'Ivoire or Ivory Coast, uh, Mali and Sudan. And with these plausibility probes, I, I tried to see if my findings from the DRC study um, travel to these other cases as well. So these cases do show a larger degree of variation in um, cooperation between the UNI and the ICC than my within-case comparisons, uh, comparisons of the DRC. So especially in the Sudan case, we can see how conditions can also converge to completely block any possibility of UN-ICC cooperation. I think I spoke about the fact that the ICC had indicted Omar al-Bashir, but also there were uh, what I see as skeptical opponents of the ICC leading the mission. They really saw very serious risks in assisting the ICC, and uh, they felt that they also felt very strong resistance from the host government to any kind of cooperation. And this host government was also pushing the UN Security Council to uh, take out any kind of a potential in the mandate for uh, assistance to international justice. And so here we see basically complete non-cooperation. There is no co was no cooperation on the ground between the UN and the ICC, especially not after the uh, ICC had indicted Omar al-Bashir. Um, but, I mean, overall, I, I think the conditions that I developed in my DRC case study and that I tested in my DRC case study did hold up relatively well. So it did lead to this broader conclusion that I think we can draw is that if a multidimensional peace operation is deciding on how and whether to assist the ICC, it's going to look at its mandate, it's going to look at international support for assistance uh, and also the risk to stability and its relations with the government and this whole um, all these factors that are 
being taken into account are balanced in a particular way by a mission leader who has a particular personal identity that we also need to study carefully to really understand what's going on. So given how much this applies, um, I think I very much found myself agreeing with it, reading the book um, to multidimensional peacekeeping missions beyond the DRC. Let's talk kind of specifics. What are the implications of your findings then in terms of theory and in terms of policy to understand interactions between UN peacekeeping and the ICC? So I think with, with regards to theory, it's the main points are, I think, the um, decision-making framework that I postulate, so that I, that I put together into the book. And uh, I, I mentioned the most important components of it, which are this, these, these structural aspects of international support and mandates, but also uh, the risk framework. And I think the risks are a, an aspect of UN peacekeeping that have, of course, been always been taken into account and have always been studied. But I think um, that the way that I uh, uh, frame it in the book might also have some further utility for um, analyzing other decisions that UN peace operations are taking with regards to protection of civilians, for example, but also um, potentially uh, things like when, when and how to publish human rights reports, uh, these kinds of things. Um, another aspect on the theoretical level that I think is important to highlight is, again, this agency of the mission, mission leaders. So there is more attention to micro-level dynamics and, and to looking at individuals in UN peace operations. But what has not happened often enough is to see them as real human beings, as people who have personalities, as people who have a particular background and particular experience in other mission contexts or in their um, careers within the UN or otherwise within their own uh, countries. And that this is going to shape the way that they're going to be making decisions and that these agent level factors are something that we need to, uh, to study more seriously and more extensively in other contexts as well. Uh, when it comes to the ICC component, I think uh, it's, there's, there's been a tendency in the literature and in the theory on the ICC to almost exclusively look at how it gets cooperation from states. And I hope that the book will generate more research and also gives a justification of extending that analysis also to uh, other actors that the ICC is cooperating with, which have, I, at least in my perception, been understudied uh, quite a lot. Um, so that I think those are the most important theoretical implications. Uh, when it comes to practical implications, um, well, let's, let me mention uh, two. Um, so the first is that the supporters of cooperation need to carefully consider some of these longer-term effects that I, talk about, I talked about before and also take into account more seriously this peace and justice dilemma. So the states and individuals supporting the ICC and the UN peace operations uh, they often tend to prefer democratic governance structures with room for human rights and the potential that the exact opposite is being achieved uh, by UNICC cooperation is something that needs to be taken seriously and also I think has to become part of policy discussions on these institutions. So it's more about um, doing this with a clear-eyed view of the structural and operational effects of UNICC cooperation, not necessarily saying that this shouldn't be happening, but these discussions need to happen and there needs to be clear uh, guidance and, and discussion within the UN on this. 
finally, I think that the book shows that there are a number of levers that the UN and the ICC, the NGOs and interested states uh, might have to manipulate the likelihood of UN ICC cooperation. So I show a couple of ways in which it can be made more or less likely. So for more details, I really want to refer to my book because I provide quite a few, but they include uh, things like the ways in which mandates are formulated, uh, the public statements that states make regarding anti-impunity efforts, uh, and the ways in which the UN selects its senior staff in UN peace operations, but also the timing of the ICC's prosecution decisions. I would, I think, second uh, the recommendation to read the book for the details because they are, um, there are a lot of them. And I think that the specifics matter here, um, particularly for anyone doing research in this area or interested in learning more. There is a lot in the book. Obviously, we've done, I suppose, a highlights version of it here. Uh, so I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, before I let you go, though, I do have one further question. Obviously, at the beginning, you talked about how this project has really come from, you know, a, a, a long time, a lot of effort um, all through your PhD and now here, and it's finally out in the world and done. So is there anything you might be working on now or next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this exact topic that you'd like to preview? Yeah, so I have a, a couple of projects going on. And one of the things that's nice about the PhD at the European University Institute was that I had a lot of time to do my research because you don't have to teach there. Um, you just have 100% time for your research. Uh, and now I'm at Leiden University where, uh, I, I mean, I love teaching, but it also takes up quite a lot of time. Uh, so in the time that I do have left, uh, I got a couple of projects going on. So one of the, one of the things that I'm trying to do is to take out some of these uh, so, so one of the things that's always uh, interesting about translating a PhD to a book is that you have to take a lot of stuff out. And so that meant that I had to take out a couple of um, what I thought were very interesting components that just didn't fit into the book because it would become way too long. So I'm currently trying uh, to tie up a couple of these loose ends that I couldn't really address in the book, such as how UN peace operations respond to changes in geopolitical conditions or how they manage and respond to threats emerging from spoilers, uh, but also the development of the conditionality policy, policy which later became the human rights due diligence policy, which is about the UN's cooperation with host state armed forces. So those are that's basically a couple of loose articles that I've got out there that I'm currently trying to write up and present and publish. Uh, the other big project I'm working on is related to the special political missions of the UN. So I got a grant for that that I'm working on together with my colleague Vanessa Newby. Um, and these special political missions are, are smaller scale, diplomatically focused peace operations that seek to support political processes and assist in mediation efforts. Uh, but I want to know basically how do these operations work at the micro level and um, whether some of these decision-making processes I found in my book also apply to this different type of mission. So I've got a, a funding for uh, three field visits to the special political missions in Yemen, uh, the Great Lakes, and in Colombia. And this will hopefully result in a number of journal articles. So I hope that you'll be hearing Brilliant. more about that well, soon. Well, thank you very much for previewing those. Now we'll know what to look out for. Um, and of course, while you work on them, listeners can read the book we've been discussing, titled Assisting International Justice, Cooperation Between UN Peace Operations and the International Criminal Court in the Democratic Republic of Congo, published by Oxford University Press. Tom, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. <laughs>